I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Oren Davinsky. Dr. Davinsky is a professor in the departments of neurology, neurosurgery, and psychiatry at the New York University School of Medicine. He's a board-certified neurologist who's been practicing for many, many years now. He is also a researcher. A lot of his neurology work specializes in epilepsy, but he also has a longstanding interest in topics related to nutrition, metabolism, evolution, and the history of science. And we actually spent most of the discussion talking about things related to a 2022 paper he published about dietary trends in the United States since the 1800s. And so we went through that paper and discussed what what some of those trends were. How has total calorie consumption changed over time in the United States? How has the consumption of different carbohydrates, proteins, and fats changed? How has the the calories we obtain from animal versus plant-based fats changed over time? Uh, And so on and so forth. We talked about the macronutrient profiles of different types of foods. We talked about processed versus non-processed foods. We talked about the history of diet in the United States and the anthropology of diet going back to different hunter-gatherer groups in human evolutionary history. And we, you know, we talked about you know what is actually driving things like cardiovascular disease and obesity and metabolic syndrome. We talked about the so-called diet heart hypothesis, the, the widespread and very influential belief that uh, started in the mid-1900s that high cholesterol, high blood cholesterol is what drives heart disease and high dietary intake of saturated fat is what drives high cholesterol. And we talked about what the evidence for that actually is and whether or not trends in U.S. diets uh, support or don't support that hypothesis. We talked about energy balance and obesity and the extent to which obesity and other forms of metabolic illness can be explained by simply how many calories we consume. Uh, You know, spoiler alert, you can't just explain metabolic syndrome and obesity with the amount of calories we're eating. We also talked about how it is that our health and medical institutions are set up such that they can make recommendations that people follow and that are sort of the standard recommendations for many, many years and even decades that are based on very thin evidence and turn out to be uh, wrong and even backwards in some cases. Uh, so we talked about you know what his views are on our mod- modern institutions, the American Heart Association, uh, public health institutions of various kinds, whether or not we should be able to trust them and and how we think about public health in general. So if you're, inter- if you're interested in diet and metabolism and nutrition and how the diet of Americans has changed over time and what that does or does not tell us about uh, the types of diets we should be eating to prevent disease. This is a really fascinating episode. Dr. Davinsky not only has a deep knowledge on the science side, but he has a lot of knowledge on the history side here as well, which I think is very important. As always, uh, please remember I have a Substack, mindandmatter.substack.com. You'll find all of my podcast material there, as well as my long-form science writing and my free weekly newsletter to keep you up to date on the podcast and share with you interesting science and research that is informing the episodes that I actually put out there. And with that, this episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mind and 
matter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure. And vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Here's my conversation with Dr. Oren Davinsky. Yes, I'm a neurologist. I went to medical school and then did training in neurology and then subsequently subspecialty training in epilepsy. And I have directed the NYU Epilepsy Center for the past three decades or so. But I have a fair number of other interests from evolutionary biology to nutrition, which I think we'll be discussing here, to the history of science. And many of them come together on this topic. Yeah, you... um we're going to talk basically about one paper today and, and some related uh, topics, but you had this paper come out not so long ago called um, United States Dietary Trends Since 1800. Uh, subtitle is Lack of Association Between Saturated Fatty Acid C Consumption and Non-Communicable -communic Diseases. So, you know, very briefly, you're a neurologist, you've got all these other interests, but uh, you know, what, what actually got you to write a paper about this particular subject? So it's interesting. I think going back 12 or more years ago, I took a family vacation in Mexico and a good friend of mine bought me a book by Gary Taubes called Good Calories, Bad Calories. It was a big paperback and having lots of time on a chair on the ocean, I read it cover to cover and it kind of blew my mind. It just completely shocked me that I was reading about parts of history that I just assumed were black and white factual that were not, and things I was taught in medical school, my medical training and career uh, had been wrong. And I actually reread the book during that vacation and since then have become friends with Gary. And that led me to a deep dive into nutrition and health. Yeah. I mean, in a vague way, I, you know, I've had, uh, you know, somewhat of a similar experience. So, you know, my background, you know, my PhD is in neuroscience, but I actually worked in the department of uh, diabetes, uh, endocrinology and metabolism at the Beth, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in, in Boston. So, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about feeding and metabolism and stuff like that, but I had sort of no knowledge of the history of the dietary recommendations and how all of the things that I thought were just the, the, cold, hard facts of, of medical nutrition uh, that I grew up with and that I was taught you know, as I grew up about what to eat and what not to eat, I had no idea what the history actually was, and, and we're going to get into some of that. Um, just to sort of start to set the stage for some uh, for folks before we get into the, the trends and the things that you analyze in this paper, I want to talk about a, a few different things and put, put some historical context uh, here for people. So roughly speaking, when we think about things like the obesity epidemic, the rise in diabetes, roughly when did these things start to clearly rise in the United States? So I would say Elliot Jocelyn, who founded the Harvard Diabetes Center, where you worked, 
um, was America's preeminent diabetologist at the turn of the 20th century, going from the late 1800s into the early 1900s. And he actually observed an epidemic, as he referred to it, of diabetes in his little hometown of Oxford, Massachusetts, where all of a sudden many people were developing adult onset, as it was called at the time, diabetes. So I think the these have been slowly creeping, but exponential epidemics of obesity and diabetes probably going back centuries. I think it began in the wealthy class of people. So if you go back to the Middle Ages and you look at who, you know, the fat, the fat was a not uncommon eponym after King so-and-so the fat. And the only people who could be fat in the Middle Ages were royalty because they were the only ones who could afford the processed foods that could make you fat. Uh, so it was, it was an eponym. It was actually probably a marker of status because it was so hard to actually uh, to put yeah, on Yeah, it was weight. hard to be fat. And I think people didn't even understand obesity. There's one terribly racist but informative line from a Dr. U. Trowell. He was one of the English, what they called colonial physicians in the 20th century. So I think going into like 1920, 1930, he went from England to East Africa worked mainly in Tanzania and Kenya and was one of the early members of the East African Medical Association. And he writes really kind of eerily that during World War II in the mid early 40s, he says, we knew how to fatten a chicken for the pot. But despite taking thousands of x-rays of Africans intestines, we couldn't figure out how to fatten an African for battle. So here we are, 1942, 1943, here's an English physician in East Africa. This is a British colony, many able-bodied black young men who they would love to have sent to North Africa for the you know desert fight against the Germans. And they couldn't because they were underweight and they did not know how to fatten them. So Trowell goes and goes back to England. I think he spent some time in Philadelphia. He returns to East Africa in the 50s, and he's shocked to see an epidemic of obesity and diabetes has taken over the land. Now they don't know how to keep an African from, from getting obese. So over a period of 20 years in this specific area of East Africa, um, they literally, they didn't know how to have black individuals reach the body weight of the average Englishmen, and then shortly afterwards, they couldn't keep them thin. So, so we've got you know now now we live in a world where we're you know we literally talk about the obesity epidemic, and you know we're going to get into some of some of the potential uh, factors that influence that. The other thing I want to talk about uh, for historical context purposes is something called the diet heart hypothesis, and before I even knew this. As as the name and and the person behind it and some of the history here, you know, I can remember growing up. So I was born in the late '80s. So I grew up in the '90s and early 2000s and, and came of age. It was common knowledge at school from physicians, from adults, in you know, in all parts of my life. Don't eat too much saturated fat. Don't eat too much cholesterol. Don't eat things like red meat. You know, too much because these are the things that cause heart disease. That, you know, until I was, you know, a young adult, at least, that seemed like cold, hard facts of, of medical knowledge. Like we knew what caused it. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, where, where did this, where did that 
those ideas come from? When did they start? And, and at the time they were formulated, how strong was the evidence? So the evidence has never been good. Um, we are left with a relic. So unfortunately, the American Heart Association probably represents the most diehard advocate. Um, and I think it would be wonderful if they would go back and do a deep dive over the history, which we'll touch on here. So I think the man who who brought us the diet heart hypothesis was a scientist, Ansel Keys. He is a remarkable man. So I think one thing I, I personally don't love is that there are either the Ansel Key fanatics who just treat him as if he was God, and there are the Ansel Keys devil, that he's the one who messed up all of American medicine. And I don't give him credit for either of those things. I think he was a very brilliant, hardworking, remarkable individual who made some enormous mistakes and, as most people do, put the force of his power behind his personal views and advocated them and and really confused, I think, opinion in science. And I can get, I think there's one, one or a couple moments where the, we just got it wrong as a nation. And mm -hmm. uh, I'll, if I can just start. So the story of Ansel Keys, and it's been told before, there's a video at the University of Minnesota where he spent most of his academic career that highlights his career. And he was the person who invented the K-rations of World War II. They had actually asked him, because he'd studied altitude medicine in South America and the Andes, to help design meals for pilots. And as he said, this is kind of crazy. He knew nothing about nutrition at the time. He'd studied oxygen concentrations when you're up high in altitude. So he devised some you know, simple meals that could be stored for long periods. And they turned out to be pretty high in sugar. Hmm. Uh, he is funded by the Sugar Foundation early on in the 40s. And these became known as the K-rations or Keys rations. And they were used by many, many GIs throughout World War II. And they they traveled well, they preserved well, and the soldiers were relatively happy with them. So he became somewhat famous for that. Then towards the end of World War II, as, as the United States and the Allies were preparing for hopefully victory, but also the recognition that there was going to be terrible food shortages all throughout Europe, that, you know, many of the granaries had been destroyed and that there was, you know, going to be poverty in many countries that like Italy that were battered by the war, that they were thinking about how do they how do they figure out the health of nutrition? And so Ansel Keys was funded by the government to do what was still probably the largest study of semi-starvation ever done. He did this on conscientious objectors. In, at the University of Minnesota, and they gave him very low-calorie diets. They had him walk like five miles a day. And he documented all the changes, which had been documented before and documented subsequently, but a large two-volume book, uh, The Biology of Human Starvation. Um, and it showed their sex drives diminished. They became ravenous. They would fight each other over crumbs. Uh, it's just what happens to young, healthy men when they don't eat enough calories and enough food. So in that process, he wrote this two-volume set and, again, became very well-respected internationally because it was probably the, the best contribution to the study of the science of human starvation. So because of that, he got appointed in the late 40s to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization Committee and went there and got, a, I think, a Fulbright or one of those scholarships to be in Oxford for a couple of years 
And while he was in Oxford, there was a ration on heat fuel. He and his wife, Margaret, were freezing, even though they came from Minnesota. They were freezing in Oxford. And he had heard from a colleague, a cardiologist or medical doctor in Naples, that whereas the rest of the world in Europe seems to be having a heart disease epidemic, um, the people in, in Naples were not getting heart disease. So Ansel Keys and his wife, Margaret, who actually did cholesterol measurements, decided to take a trip and they took their car and they literally drove across Europe and went down to Naples. And he went to a Rotary Club dinner and there he had an epiphany. He was watching the wealthy businessmen of the Ro Rotary Club eat their roast beef and desserts and recognized that the poor people in town were eating simple bread with vegetables. And when his wife measured their cholesterol, the wealthy Rotary Club members who were eating the beef and the, and the desserts uh, had very high cholesterol and the poor laborers had very low cholesterol. And in his mind, it was the fat, a light bulb lit off that the big difference between these wealthy guys eating roast beef and dessert was the fat that they were eating and that the poor people were eating the simple food that was just carbohydrates and vegetables and, and essentially very, very, very little fat. And that was one way to interpret the data, and it was not an unreasonable way to do it. The problem is he completely ignored the role of processed carbohydrates, sugar, white flour. That also distinguished those two groups of individuals, and I would say distinguished almost all groups of individuals who do and do not have obesity in the world or populations. But I think if I can, so he took this and he created a hypothesis back in 1952-53 called the Diet Heart Hypothesis. And his first seminal paper was in the Mount Sinai um, Hospital Journal in 1953. And that's where he really proposed the Diet Heart Hypothesis. And the idea was, was really simple. He showed correlations. If you picked, and he did this selectively, six or so countries that have high rates of fat consumption. They also turn out to be the countries that have high rates of heart disease. Mm. Now, he was later criticized terribly for this because there were probably 22 countries with data available, and he chose the six that fit perfectly into this relationship. You could have chose another six that showed the opposite correlation, where the more fat they ate, the less heart disease they got. But he chose quite wisely to support his hypothesis. And again, this is 53 before data selection was quite as big a deal in science as it is today. Mm -hmm. But I think the critical piece of data, which I'm going to talk about here, I don't think it's really ever made it into the Gary Taubes and, and um, other books of that genre, mm -hmm. is that he quotes, and there's a, I'm looking at the paper right now, it's table 14, and he gets data from a woman, I think her name was Elizabeth Fippard from the USDA, on the percentage of total calories that are fat in the US diet. So just to do another caveat, the data from 1910 and 1920 and 1930 are terrible. Mm -hmm. um, we just don't have good data. Keep in mind, in 1920, half of America lived on farms mm -hmm. or within five miles. So the USDA was not good at tracking if you ate a piece of pig from the guy who was your next door neighbor, they can't yeah. track that degree. They could track if it went to a big meat processing plant in Chicago, but not if it came from the farm a mile away. The bottom line is between 1910 
when the average American ate 32% fat in their diet, and 1950, when the average American ate 42.2% of fat in their diet. And so Key said, look what's happened. From 1910 to 1950, our fat consumption has gone up 25%, and there's been an explosion of heart disease. What's going on in the arteries of these people who have died from heart attacks? They've got fat. They've got cholesterol. So in his mind, I think the pieces just fell in so perfectly to this little jigsaw puzzle. What no one goes back and does is look at Fippard's data, or more importantly, what Ansel Keys found. And what he says is from the statistics in the USDA, it's clear the biggest contributor to the fats in the American diet are fats and oils, excluding butter, which are nearly 46.5% of the total. Meats, poultry, and fish combine to make a poor second at 22%. Any, this is, I'm quoting Ansel Keys. Any attempt to reduce the total fat intake must then begin with cooking fats and oils. Mm. So that's what he said back in 53. The problem was they then started doing feeding studies. And it turned out giving people cholesterol didn't raise their cholesterol much. It did a little bit. Just a little bit. Giving them polyunsaturated fats, the canola oils, which is rapeseed oil, or other oils like that, also barely budged the needle on cholesterol. And they found out during the mid-1950s that the only thing that really raised total cholesterol were saturated fats. Mm -hmm. So Keys pivoted from this early position where it was total fats, yes. and total fats caused heart disease. And indeed, the only thing that changed in the American diet were, were, were oils and fats, not butter, not lard, as I discussed in the paper, but cooking oils. That was the explosion of the 20th century in the American diet for fats. And that's what was associated with the rise in heart disease. I see. But because he was fixated on this cholesterol levels, that made him go, okay, well, it's got to be the saturated fat here. Correct. He pivoted from the early mid-50s to the late 50s, and then he took over the American Heart Association Nutrition Committee and got this to become national policy. I see. So so part of the trajectory here is I don't want to I don't want to spend too much time on on Ansel Keys. Everyone's yeah. everyone talks about him, but smart guy, motivated guy, probably liked being right, probably thought he was right and he was it wasn't, you know, like this was coming out of nowhere. Um it was based on what he was seeing. Um but he was also good at getting into positions like, you know, being the chair of committees at the AMA, and that was probably a key factor in why his ideas were able to spread through institutions and radiate outwards so so effectively. Correct. Yeah. Even like when Eisenhower is heart disease, heart attack, um, White, who is the head cardiologist at Harvard, became Eisenhower's cardiologist. And and he got to write a, a large piece in the New York Times on the front page. And Ansel Keys was the only scientist he calls out and did so several times in that article. So Keyes, you know, was a very influential figure. Uh, having said that, White, towards the end of his career and days wrote a long biography and barely mentions Ansel Keys. So, you know, Keys was one of those people who could ingratiate himself, but he may not have remained on everybody's most popular list. Hmm. Okay. So just so it's um, top of mind for listeners, um, in, in plain language, what was the diet heart hypothesis that, that he formulated? The diet heart hypothesis 
morphed over time, but it began with the idea from this 1953 paper that heart disease is caused by too much cholesterol in your blood. It congeals in the arteries and causes heart attacks. That's essentially the hypothesis and that the most important factor determining cholesterol levels is diet. In 1953, as I just said, he thought it was all fats that caused cholesterol buildup and heart disease. By the late 1950s, when the feeding studies had clearly shown that the only fat that really raised cholesterol was saturated fat, he pivoted to that. And although saturated fat's the only fat that also raises HDL, what's known as the good cholesterol, hmm. he and the AHA ignored that. That's like, don't even talk about it. Yep. So diet heart hypothesis, basically heart disease comes from your cholesterol levels being too high, your cholesterol levels being too high, widely believed to be coming from uh, saturated fat. Therefore, don't eat saturated fat to raise your cholesterol levels and then get heart disease. Exactly. Um, in parallel to that, what is, um, you know, because we're going to talk about um, obesity as well. Um, what is the ener energy balance hypothesis of obesity? So the energy balance hypothesis was I was taught in medical school. Um, you know, it's touted as being consistent with the laws of thermodynamics. Uh, and thermodynamics works beautifully well for physics. Biology is more complicated. So the energy balance hypothesis is that, you know, you're an adult male, I'm making this up, but you weigh 175 pounds. Um, your basal metabolic rate, if you just, you know, sit in a chair and read a book all day and go to sleep, let's just say you burn, you know, 1500 calories, but you're not a couch potato, you walk a couple miles a day, you lift some weights, so you burn 2400 calories a day, you're an average man. And the energy balance says, if you have a basal metabolic rate of 1500, you burn 900 in exercise, then if you take in 2,400 calories a day, uh, you'll be weight neutral for the rest of your life. If you take in 2,450 calories a day, that 50 is just a teeny weeny bit, but multiply it by 365 days times 10 years, and you'll gain 10 pounds or whatever that number comes out to over 10 years. That's the energy balance hypothesis. And I think it's mainly wrong. I think there's certainly shards of truth. Thermodynamics is true. Um, the problem is our bodies are not engines. Um, they are metabolic engines, but they're much more complicated. The simplest example, it's almost comical, is that the amount of calories in something like four and a half ounces of a ribeye steak and four and a half ounces of diesel fuel and four and a half ounces of gasoline may all have the same calories. Mm -hmm. And for an engine that could burn all three, they are energetically identical. However, you and I, of course, if we took the gasoline or diesel, we would be barfing or having diarrhea or probably both and get very sick um, and get no beneficial calories from it. Our engines don't burn gasoline in the same way a gasoline car will die after a couple miles on diesel. So, you know, the idea that it's just calories is just way too simplistic. We have microbiomes that influence our metabolic rate. Not all of us are able to digest the same foods in the same way, but we also have these things called hormones that greatly influence where we put calories, how we put calories. And, you know, examples are men and women. Mm -hmm. You know, men and women after puberty distribute calories very, very differently. Men have a greater muscle mass, 
women have larger breasts and larger hips. And obviously, reproductive reasons why those things happen, they're present in all human populations. But it's not that kids grow because they eat too much. <laughs> it's grow because hormones tell them to grow. Mm -hmm. Is it fair to say that the the energy balance hypothesis is essentially just saying it's about calories in, calories out, and a calorie is a calorie, but alternative hypotheses are saying, well, no, a calorie is not a calorie. Your body uses different calories in different ways. Exactly. And I think they're both true to some degree. I think you know many of my friends, and I'm on their side, that I think the energy balance hypothesis is way too simplistic for human beings or any animal, quite frankly. Um, by the same token, you know, if you eat junk food or you eat healthy food and you have 7,000 calories a day, you're, you're going to probably gain weight, even if you're eating, you know, broccoli and asparagus. Um, it's going to be hard because it is just a crazy overload of, of energy that your body can use. But yeah. it's too simplistic. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so I don't think anyone's saying calories in calories out doesn't matter at all it's just whether right. or not that is sufficient to explain it's the not the primary driver there's no way it's the primary driver okay. because as i said go back to you travel in kenya in 1942 they tried that in the same way find me an obese individual who hasn't tried to reduce their weight by reducing their calories mm -hmm. find me one <laughs> you know everyone tries it intuitively you know you're going out to a wedding or it's summertime and you want to lose a few pounds, everyone just intuitively says, I'll eat less and I'll lose some weight. And it's just not that simple, certainly not for obese people. So getting um, into the paper now, I mean, you know, roughly speaking, right, when we care, when, when we think about some of these questions, diet heart hypothesis questions and, and heart disease, um, obesity questions, metabolic health, um, one key piece of information to evaluate some of these ideas, at least partially, is just to look at how the food supply and how food consumption changed. Um, and, and you did that. Can you briefly just explain for people, what is this paper? Um, where did, where did the data come from? And, um, you know, how did you look at it? How, how good is the data? I think the data is as good as we could get it to be. As I said, as you go back in time, um, it gets really hard because you go back to 1920, 1930, a lot of the data was collected, I think, at the beginning of World War II retrospectively. So it wasn't, I mean, the USA DA did collect some data, but it was dirty, rough, and you know would not make scientific merit in today's world as being accurate data. So these are rough estimates. Uh, certainly, we know that you know we can go back and look at diaries from places like African slaves in the South, and they you know they ate huge amounts of pork and fry bread and things like that. So you know we have ideas about what they ate, but America ate a lot of meat. Keep in mind, we had millions and millions. You know, Native Americans had millions of bison. Um, to hunt, and they did. You know, settlers ate bison too, but in the Northeast, you know, people ate steaks for breakfast, mm. and meat was very available in the 1800s. Now, again, these going back to historical records and who's writing these are often the wealthy people, not the poor people. Poor Irish immigrants in 1910 ate a lot of bread and vegetables in New York, I believe. So a lot of it was socioeconomic, but even in the South on plantations in the slavery days, Blacks were given pigs to own. The whites pretty much had cows and chickens. So, you know, people had access to meat. But we we tried to get all the data we could, all the USDA data, all of the published records that were out there. We went through all the papers that looked at dietary trends, 
tried to get all of their sources. I was fortunate to have several research students helping me on the paper, and, and it took well over a year. And we went through many, many hundreds of sources um, to compile the best data we could. Is it far from perfect? But I think it's about as accurate as we can get. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like I, I I got interested in this topic um, and related topics, and I just wanted to know like how how have diets actually changed over time? And as I was as I was uh, you know digging around online, I, I started noticing these figures that all kind of looked the same, had the same style. And then I actually realized that that you had sort of put uh, a lot of the stuff in one place. Um, so to give people an idea for some of the major trends here, I just want to go through some of the figures in the paper and have you give us at least a bird's eye view, but just starting with total calories and macronutrients, carbs, total carbs, total protein, total fats. What are the most salient ways that consumption of those things was changing throughout the 20th century? I think overall, we, we got better at processing food. So things, for example, vegetable, what we call vegetable oils, but they're not vegetable oils. They are industrial or processed seeds um, from which oils are extracted under high pressure and temperature and things like that. So they're not natural products. So, you know, one way to think about diet for me is, and not the first person to say it, but if your great grandparent consumed it, then it probably was fairly healthy. But if it had to go through a factory in the Midwest to get to your plate, you should be suspicious of it. So what we call vegetable oils or seed oils, which make up about 8% of the American diet now, they didn't exist prior to 1909 in Crisco. And when Crisco was first commercialized, it was you know an oil that was hydrogenated. So it was under pressure, hydrogen was put in there, and it created... Um, a lot of trans fats, as we now know, which are another category of unhealthy foods that can accumulate. They're not natural. There are some trans fats in nature, but they're very, very tiny amounts. Um, but they became a large part of the American diet, of my diet in my childhood. You, you know, went to a fast food McDonald's or Burger King. You bought some, you know, Susie Q's or Drake's cakes. They had, they all had, were abundant in trans fats, and no one was keeping track of them. Obviously, that eventually came out, and they've been greatly reduced in the American diet. For people like myself in the 60s, in my 60s, you know, in when I was 10 years old, 20, 30, trans fats were just a big part of the American diet. So that's one thing. We introduced all these unnatural fats. At the same time, natural fats like butter, lard, suet, tallow, the cooking fats of our parents' generations have largely, you know, gone down 70, 80%, largely being replaced by vegetable oils. Is that good? Um, You know, maybe good, maybe bad. I don't think we know. These are complicated questions, but we do know the butter and lard had a lot more saturated fats than the vegetable oils do. So in principle, vegetable oils, we should have seen a dramatic reduction in heart disease if it was really the lard and the butter that was driving it. But indeed, we saw a rise as vegetable oils displaced lard and butter. Yeah, and, and you know one of the one of the things I see here, you know, when I look at just the the trajectory of the supply of total calories, total carbs, total protein, total fat, is it, it, well, first, pro- protein's quite flat over time. Protein consumption yep. cha- changed very little compared to the others. Um, certainly by about 1970, you start seeing the steep rise in total calories. And that seems to be driven by a rise in both 
carbs and fats. But then by about the turn of the millennium, about 2000, things actually start going down. And so th- that's interesting to me. So things did rise and you know, obesity would have been rising uh, around this time period, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. But then it continues rising, obesity does. And yet total calorie, total carb, and total fat start actually going down somewhat after about 99, 2000. Is that is that accurate? That's correct. Is the best, and again, the more recent data I think is probably more accurate than the data from the 1930s or so. And I think it speaks to the fact that what creating the obesity now, it was what everyone still, you know, the American Medical Association hardest. If you want to know how to lose weight, reduce your caloric intake, and that's what people will tell you. Unfortunately, it just doesn't work. As I said, most obese people have tried to reduce their calories, and losing weight is just not that simple. Another interesting thing here, you know, related to you know the the change in the consumption patterns for specific foods like vegetable oils, like butter, lard, etc., is thinking about this in terms of the different fatty acids. So the three main categories here that people will have heard of: saturated, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated fats. How did those specific fats change relative to one another um, over time since, uh, say, the mid 1900s? I think saturated fats overall have been pretty stable. Um, hard again, hard to really know truly what they were consuming in 1910, 1920, but as best we know, it's pretty stable. The big rise has come from the polyunsaturated fats, which are mainly the vegetable oils we were talking about, uh, and then also the monounsaturated fats, which is oleic acid, things like that, and olive oil, uh, which is a more natural pro- product and obviously has been consumed by Mediterranean populations like the Greeks and the Italians most famously, um, and been associated with good health in those populations. But no population, no human population has consumed vegetable oils historically. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, for my entire life, um, for many people's entire lives, um, even to this day, like when I go to the supermarket and I, I look at what are the things that have that heart healthy sticker on them, it's things that contain unsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats. What, what, where did that come from? Why, who considers those to be the healthy fats and what is the evidence behind calling the unsaturated fats, the heart healthy ones? So I'd say two streams of evidence support it. One I've already discussed in the mid 1950s, they started doing very large scale feeding studies. They took young adults you know, put them in a dormitory, counted everything they ate for a period of a month or so. And those who were given polyunsaturated fats like canola oil or things like that, um, they found that their cholesterol levels often went down a little bit by having high polyunsaturated fat diets. So in the simplistic view of high cholesterol causes heart disease, causes death, um, and polyunsaturated fats can be associated with a reduction, especially if they replace saturated fats, then yes, total cholesterol will often drop. Now, the HDL ratio to LDL may get worse, but the total cholesterol would typically go down and total LDL would typically go down. So that was kind of the, the, the simple story. And in public health, the goal of physicians and and public health officers is to keep it simple for lay people. Don't make it complicated. And they tried to suppress the whole concept of HDL and LDL for a long time, saying people would get confused, just talk about total cholesterol. So there were journals that wouldn't publish on HDL and LDL in the 60s and suppressed a lot of data on this. So that was one of the areas. And the other is that there have been some studies, a limited number, 
where populations have been put on a quote-unquote Mediterranean-style diet, where they did reduce saturated fats, they did increase polyunsaturated fat consumption, and some of those studies, a limited number, have shown some reduction in heart disease. Now, that may not be the only thing that changed in the diet. Very few of those people getting put on a Mediterranean diet were eating, you know, Hershey candy bars by the mm-hmm. pound. Either. Mm-hmm. So there, there, are, there are other changes that go with it. Yeah, and and I also suspect that you know a key thing when we think about that body of work is um, it's not enough just to think about unsaturated or polyunsaturated fats. For example, you have to go down to the level of individual fatty acids. So you know the Mediterranean diet. If you were to look at say the omega six to omega three profile of that versus a high vegetable oil uh, diet that an American might be consuming, those are very different animals. Absolutely. And and again, you know, if you look at the blue zones, whether it's Okinawa or Sardinia, you know, there are some common themes. Number one, people eat real food. The foods are very different, whether it's Costa Rica or Japan, uh, but they eat foods that comes from nearby and it's minimally processed. And they move and they have family relationships. You know, those are the three key things that are associated with good health in human populations. But I think as far as diet goes, for me, it's the ultra-refined diet that Americans eat that's killing them and causing obesity and diabetes. Yeah. I mean, another remarkable thing when you realize it, um, it's, 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 you know, arguably obvious until, uh, until you just really look at it. You know, as I've thought about diet stuff is, um, you know, to echo what you just said, um, if you look at, say, the the anthropological literature on, you know, hunter-gatherers in, you know, all over the world, people have radically different diets, some of them ultra-high carb, some of them ultra-high fat, and in all of these vastly different populations, they still have very, very low levels of chronic disease, obesity, things like this. Including cancer, I'll just throw, for me, cancer's what my family has too much of, and I was shocked when I started going through this literature as well. I mean, two, two observations, one which I think should be a foundation of medical school education. You know, when people like uh, Albert Schweitzer went to West Africa in the 1920s, he started operating on large numbers of people and seeing many, many patients in his clinic on a you know, five, six day a week basis. And he said, after being there a couple of years, I'm sure cancer exists somewhere in Africa, but if it does, I haven't seen it. (laughs) Hundreds of colonial physicians made that observation in Australia, in China, in Japan, in South Africa, in East Africa, in West Africa, where Schweitzer was. Cancer was a rare disease Mm -hmm. prior to industrialized processed food. And indeed, the only animals on the planet that suffer from cancer really are domesticated pets. Outside of that, and farm animals for what we feed them, doesn't exist. It's <laughs> like monkeys in captivity, they get put on an American Heart Association diet, they get obese, because it's a processed diet. And monkeys aren't fat in the real world. Mm-hmm. Do you think like if you had to, um, <clears throat> if you had to really, really boil this, I mean, maybe getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. <clears throat> But if you had to like really boil this down for the average person who doesn't have the time or the inclination to think about metabolic details and different foods and you know different saturated fatty acids and blah 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 blah, is the sort of key dichotomy people should keep in mind when they're thinking about healthy eating simply processed versus non-processed? I, I believe so, and and within the processed, I would just 
you know, the big category of the, the culprits are sugar, white flour, white rice, and anything that comes packaged. I mean, if you, you're going to buy something, throw it in the microwave and, and nuke it and eat it and call it pizza, you're in big trouble. <laughs> you're, you're eating unhealthy food. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned um, meat consumption earlier. So for most of U.S. history, you know, people live on or in close proximity to, proximity to farms. Uh, meat consumption is uh, pretty high. It's readily available. As you said, people were eating, you know, steak for breakfast uh, commonly in the 1800s. Um, one of the striking sh charts in this paper, too, is uh, basically the, the change in the meat supply over time in the 20th and uh, 21st centuries. Um, so at a high level, you have a graph that shows red meat versus poultry versus seafood fish and shellfish. What are the main trends that, that we've seen there in the last you know several decades? So I think the big, big, big ones, I mean, red meat has fluctuated a little bit. It goes down during all the world wars because uh, soldiers get priority over the uh, rations to the people at home. But apart from that, I think red meat consumption has you know gone up and down a little bit, but has been relatively stable as best we can tell. Um, pork consumption probably down a bit, but cow meat probably up a little bit so they balance the huge chain and then fish and shellfish pretty constant over time the remarkable change has been chickens uh, chicken was kind of a luxury item either you had a chicken coop nearby at a farm in the in the rural america but otherwise it was it was kind of a luxury food and just wasn't consumed it was a lot of work for a little bit of meat so to speak think about how much meat is on a cow or a pig versus on a chicken and so they were relatively expensive and and kind of a luxury item like hens for the upper wealthy class. Uh, and then I think with industrial farming of animals, which we have now, um, and and the promotion by the American Heart Association that chicken meat was considered healthy while cow meat was considered unhealthy, um, there's been a dramatic rise in the consumption of uh, dairy meat, of uh, dairy meat, of chicken meat following, you know, really 1950, 55, 60, when Ansel Keys came out with the diet heart hypothesis, chicken consumption went through the roof. And so, so over time for, for much of the 1900s, uh, certainly by mid century, yeah, this, this line for poultry is just going up and to the right, uh, much more, uh, than for red meat and, and shellfish and fish, which are you know relatively stable over time. So the, the ratio of the meats we're consuming is very different by the time you get to the 2000s compared to earlier in the 1900s. The other factor here um, that I just want to just quickly ask you about that's not in the paper, but I think would have to be relevant here is not only are meat consumption patterns changing, but I imagine the macronutrient profile of the meat itself is changing as we scale up uh, and do more things like factory farming, and we start feeding the animals in a different way. Is there anything worth talking about there? Yeah, certainly the one thing that has been well studied is that animals that are cows, for example, that are grass-fed have a much healthier omega-3 to 6 ratio than animals that are grain-fed on corn. So, you know, again, corn-fed corn animals, which is what a lot of our meat comes from, it's a better way to get fat in there because corn turns into fat much better than does grass. It's just, uh, you know, the fructose in corn is great for making fat. Fructose is the most fat producing sugar on the planet for a mammal, including us. And so, you know, that dietary change has changed not just the 
you know, the cow we're eating now is not the cow our great grandparents ate. It's very different. It's got a different fatty acid profile and, uh, you know, is less healthy, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And and you've already mentioned that you know the 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 vegetable or, or seed oils um, they've become much more common over time. When you actually look at this graph, the added fats and oil availability, it's remarkable. You see, you know, the drop in butter, lard, and, and the animal fats started quite early in the 20th century, um, but then by the time you get the data in, in mid century, by the 60s with the vegetable oils, when you look at this, it's going up into the right the entire time basically, but. It's going up strongly from mid 1900s to late 1900s, but then at about the year 2000, it starts accelerating even more. Um, and now it's you know sort of off the charts uh, today uh, compared to these other things. What was actually driving this dramatic rise in vegetable oils? Did we just get really good at agriculture? So I think there are a few things. You know, the data from the early part of the century is hard, and again, a lot of that was just really Crisco. So Crisco launched a big campaign, you know, which would promote themselves as clean. And one of the things that did change meat consumption patterns in America uh, was Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Mm. And it was written, interestingly, as kind of a socialist book depicting the plight of these poor workers in these meatpacking plants who lose fingers and the fingers would end up in the, you know, the meat that goes to the housewives in Milwaukee or wherever. Um, and is and the book became a bestseller, changed national policy. I think, you know, USDA was revamped at that point to do many more inspections of meatpacking plants. I think Roosevelt was president around that time. And Upton Sinclair said, I shot an arrow at America's heart and I hit them in the stomach. And what he meant by that is he wrote this, he wrote the jungle to say how bad the plight was of these American workers. He wanted to hit people in the heart of how much these working class people were suffering. But all he did was hit them in the gut that they were disgusted how horrible their the meat supply was and what the conditions were that there was urine and feces. And, you know, it was just a disgusting people were, you know, the sanitation conditions were horrific. Um, nowadays, they're probably not perfect, but in those days, 1909, uh, the truth is in Chicago meatpacking plants, they were beyond horrible. And, you know, as we've said, we have this transition away from animal towards plant-based fats driven a lot in large part by things like the vegetable oils and away from things like butter, lard, et cetera. You know, that, that graph is also dramatic. When you just look at, you have a graph of uh, the availability of vegetable-based versus animal-based um, fats and added oils. And, you know, by the 1950s, these, these two lines are diverging and then it just gets really dramatic. Um, and, you know, today it's like, you know, the vegetable oils are way up here. The animal fats are, are way, way below that. Can you talk a little bit more? So not only are we consuming more vegetable fats today than ever before, more of them compared to the animal fats, but let's dig in a little bit more and, and explain for people how the fatty acid composition of these products differs. So can you give people just a, a basic 101 there? Sure. So, you know, as we've kind of mentioned here at different times, there are three broad categories of fats. There are the saturated fats, which means there are no double bonds for those who remember their high school chemistry. And so they line up very straight and they're solid at room temperature because um, they they're, they're, they can line up and form not quite crystals, but they're much more solid structures. The unsaturated fats, 
whether they are monounsaturated, like olive oil, oleic acid, which has one double bond, um, or the polyunsaturated, poly means many, so there are many double bonds in canola oil or oils like that. Um, those are going to be liquids at room temperatures. And so one corollary of that, which is always nice to remember, if we talk about Native American Eskimos, Inuit, who also can have extraordinarily high fat consumption, um, but have unremarkable, as best we know, heart disease prior to the introduction of processed foods, although that data is not the best in the world, um, they were eating a lot of their fats came from marine animals. So if you think about it, if you're a marine animal, what's evolution going to do? It's going to put a whole lot more polyunsaturated fats in your, in your fat, as opposed to saturated fats, because if you're mostly saturated fat and you're a seal or a whale in the Arctic Circle, your fats are going to be frozen solid. Mm -hmm. As if they're polyunsaturated, they'll remain liquid in the cold weather. So sea mammals, by and large, who swim in very cold waters, even, even in temperate regions, um, tend to have very high ratios of polyunsaturated fats to fats. Very different than things like cows and pigs. Pigs live in much warmer environments. They're going to have much higher saturated fat um, components. But I think people really get mixed up with the fats because pigs, lard, for example, you know, the, the classic saturated evil fat, you know, bacon fat is terrible for you. It turns out a lot of bacon fat, number one, is monounsaturated. Mm. And a lot of the saturated fat gets turned into our body into monounsaturated fat. So the, these things are not these dichotomous things where lard is is evil, saturated fat. And I don't think saturated fat's evil to begin with, but it's just not that simple. They're all mixtures. There's no animal, whether it's mm -hmm. a cow or a seal or a pig, whose fat doesn't have mixtures of all three types, saturated, monounsaturated, and polyunsaturated. Certainly when you get to the vegetable oils, they can be pure polyunsaturated or things like olive oil, where it's a mix of a lot of monounsaturated with some polyunsaturated, maybe with a drop of saturated. And then you get to the tropical oils like coconut oil. And those are going to have high amounts of saturated fats. And again, po populations in Polynesia who ate enormous amounts of saturated fats from coconut oil and things like that, they had very low heart disease rates prior to the introduction of processed foods. Mm -hmm. Another dramatic um, change over time here is uh, you've got a graph of uh, caloric sweeteners. Um, and, you know, they all change in different ways, but probably the most dramatic change is the, the corn sweeteners, high fructose corn syrup, glucose, dextrose, things like this. Can you summarize that for people? Again, I think, you know, as this really began with the industrial age in England, um, which is where the obesity and diabetes epidemic began as well. Uh, but with industrialization, you know, we were able to power steam engines. Uh, we were also able to do large processing of sugar and flour and get it to a higher grade. It used to be molasses back in the 1800s. It was dark and you know, much less pure than than what we can get in our Domino's white sugar box today. So that's all industry. That's all using machines to process food for us. They've done the work. They've done the digestion. We've removed the fiber. We've removed micro, micronutrients. 
and we've enriched the amount of fructose. So in our country, you know, it's just so cheap. There's sugar subsidies. Uh, this is one of the places where, you know, unfortunately, I would say government policy has been has been evil and the sugar industry. There are two great quotes just to put the sugar industry in context. One is from FDR. I think it was around 1939 or 40. Um, but it was it's a it's a New York Times article. I can send it to you. But some bill he was desperate to get passed was was voted down. And he's quoted in the New York Times in the early 40s, I believe it was, as saying, uh, the most powerful lobby to descend upon Washington in my lifetime has been the sugar industry. Hmm. That's 1940. Jump ahead to like 2000-something, um, John Boehner, the Speaker of the House, who had the spontaneous crying episodes, um, he at one point said that he was like, and I'm going to misquote a little bit, but the gist will be right on, it was a Friday. I was doing a news conference on something, and I knew you can never go after the sugar industry. They were just too powerful, but I never liked them, and I just felt like, what the heck? I'm the Speaker of the House. I can take a little tweak if I want. So it was like a Friday towards the afternoon, and he said, yeah, and we may add something to the bill that might pull back on the sugar subsidies. He said over that next weekend in his home district, he had more phone calls and letters and outreach from his constituents, not nationally, but from his local congressional district saying, my brother-in-law delivers for Endermans. My sister works for this company, and if they don't have sugar, they'll go out of business. You're going to take away my family's jobs. He said in his 30 years or whatever in politics, he'd never seen a response like that ever. I mean, they own this country. They were able to get articles published in the New England Journal in the 1960s by the head of the Harvard School of Public Health Nutrition Division. They are immensely powerful. They control politicians. And, you know, they are killing us. And we are relatively powerless medically, politically. You know, it's like uh, people won't go against uh, Al Gore wouldn't go against the NRA in Tennessee if he wanted to get reelected. You know, some of these political groups are just enormously powerful. But mm -hmm. the gun industry is terrible on these mass shootings. I think it's it's horrible and criminal. I think the sugar industry is much worse on a much larger scale as far hmm. as death. Interesting. Um you know, I think I think it's safe to assume that people listening here probably have you know some reasonable level of understanding of sugar, insulin resistance, diabetes, and that obviously, certainly at least that too much sugar is obviously bad. But you said something earlier. You mentioned fructose in particular and fat synthesis. Can you give us a little bit more detail for those listening? What is fructose as opposed to other forms of sugar, and why is fructose often uh, especially bad when it comes to metabolic health? So I think that all simple sugars are relatively bad. They're not part of the natural diet. The only place they really did exist in the human diet prior to in industry is in the form of honey. And there are many human populations, the Hadza in East Africa that have honey guide birds that take them to nests. But keep in mind, they have to work. They have to climb a baobab bow tree to get to those nests. And then they have to fight the bees and get bitten, go down. And when they eat the honey, They've got larvae in there. They've got wax in there. They mm. eat the whole shebang. So they're not just putting down honey the way we do when we go to the supermarket and get a honey bottle. Um, but the radical change is that they're, you know, thinking about carbohydrates. And this is probably one of the great mistakes 
of medical science of the 20th century. And, and Jocelyn was probably one of the culprits here in a very big way. They couldn't imagine, once they understood some biochemistry, and they understood that starch would get broken down into glucose, and that glucose, which is a simple sugar of six carbons, has the same caloric density as fructose, which is another six carbon sugar, simple sugar. Um, fructose is a little sweeter to our tongues, but fructose and glucose are radically different compounds for the human body and all mammalian bodies, as far as I'm aware. The difference is that glucose can be metabolized anywhere. Your brain runs on glucose, your heart runs on glucose, your muscle runs on glucose, and your liver can process glucose and turn it into glycogen, which is our storage form of glucose, or turn it into fat, which is the long-term storage form. Fructose on, and the other part of glucose, as you alluded to, is it stimulates insulin re release. If I give you a big candy bar and I check your blood sugar a minute before and 20 minutes after, your, your glucose is gonna spike and right behind it, your insulin's gonna spike. If I gave you the equivalent amount of fructose, your fructose level will go up in your blood, your glucose level won't budge, your insulin level won't budge one iota. So fructose does not stimulate insulin, which in some ways sounds paradoxical because insulin is one of the drivers of metabolic disease and diabetes. The key issue is that short-term fructose and long-term fructose are very, very different animals. So that fructose, as I said, is the sugar that our bodily body can most readily turn into a fat. It's much more what was called by the late 1940s when they studied this, they called it lipogenic. Lip, lipo means fat, genic means genesis or make. So if you want to make fat in your body, consume fructose. If you want to really get fat, consume fructose with glucose. The glucose will stimulate insulin. Mm. Insulin tells your body, we're in a wonderfully energy-rich state. Sporting. This animal probably just eaten. Let's lock up all the fat in the fat cells because we got plenty of sugar running around the blood system. We're in the turn of making fat, storing fat, and sealing fat in fat cells. Do not let the fat out of the fat cells, if anything, put more in. And so that's what insulin tells our fat cells to do. And it says the same thing to muscle cells. Take up insulin. Take, I'm sorry, take up glucose into your muscle fibers and burn glucose because we got tons. The blood is rich in glucose. Take it up, burn it. That's what you should live on. Fuel, fuel. do not burn fat. And so when people want to burn fat, they need to not consume sugar, either glucose or fructose. But the metabolic, and that's again, we go back to Jocelyn, when they thought in the 1920s about sugars, they assumed broccoli and a candy bar were identical because mm -hmm. they were all calories derived from carbohydrates. And they were right about that. But what they were wrong about is that starch is not equal to glucose. It takes your body a long time to digest starch into simple glucose molecules. And glucose is not fructose. They have very different metabolic fates. The only organ in our body that can deal with fructose is the liver. Your muscle can't, your brain can't, your heart can't, your pancreas can't. The only thing that deals with fructose is the liver and it turns it into fat. And that process is part of the American 
the world nightmare now of sugar because we table sugar is 50-50 fructose and, and sucrose. Mm -hmm. I should say sucrose, which is 50% glucose and 50% mm -hmm. fructose. And that combination of simple sugars is something the world has never seen before prior to industrialization. Mm -hmm. So thinking in, in evolutionary terms here, why is it that fructose is only processed by the liver and the liver turns it into fat? You know, naively, at least you would think, well, we're apes, you know, uh, our, our other um, primate cousins oftentimes eat a lot of fruit. Um, why would this be the way that our bodies deal with fructose? Is there, is there like a, a, a natural evolutionary reason that, that might help us think about that? It's a good question. You know, exactly, you know, we're primates and, you know, for 60 million years, we've probably been eating fruits. Maybe one of the theories of why we have three color vision um, unlike dogs and other animals. So we, you know, primates are definitely attracted to ripe fruits. They're higher in, you know, nutritional content and sugar. Um, but I think part of it was just that the glucose could keep us going now and the fructose could keep us going in the future. That's probably the simplest way that that evolution just devised a strategy that, and again, keep in mind, as I was referring to people in East Africa in 1942, those those, they were not the unusual humans. They were the typical humans. For all of our history, human beings were thin animals. Um, just like if you look at chimpanzees in the wild or macaque monkeys in the wild, primates are thin in general. They don't carry a lot of body fat on them. Humans are probably the fattest of all the apes, but we're still thin prior to industrialized food. So I think it was just a way for if you did get a wonderfully rich meal, you have the ability to have fructose, which could be stored into fat and was a great device because, you know, prior days, hunter gatherers are very good about finding sustenance foods. So again, we don't talk about it much in diet, but the number of edible insects still consumed in the world today, over 2000 species. So humans have been eating foods that we wouldn't like all the time because they learned how to survive. Hunter gatherers don't starve to death. It's industrial population, farming populations that starve to death when, when a mold or a fungus takes over a potato crop then and everyone's eating potatoes, that's a big problem. But go back you know, 20,000 years to East Africa or wherever, and people were fine at surviving. They'll eat meat if they can get it. If they can't eat meat, they'll eat sugar-rich fruits if they can get them or honey. If they can't get those They'll eat low quality foods, plants and insects. Although insects have a lot of protein and have fat, they're very nutritious. And that's why there are 2000 edible species still consumed in the world. Why do you refer to plants and insects as low quality foods there? I just mean as far as the caloric density I see. and what they have. So I think I, I shouldn't say low quality. They're not dangerous in any way. They're just, you know, humans are humans, just like you and I. And if I, you know, if I went up to the average 14-year-old and said, would you like a pepperoni pizza? Would you like a piece of broccoli? <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. or would you like a caterpillar? Or would you like, you know, to chew on the leaves and the plant behind you, which probably have a drop of nutrition, but but terribly little? Um, you know, the pizza is going to, is just like a little, you know, it's a uh, steroids. It's food on yeah. steroids. Yeah. So, I mean, just, you know, any animal human or, or non-human, right. It's, it's, uh, perfectly, uh, you, you can, you can, it's easy to imagine why they're going to prefer high caloric density because out in the wild, you know, you don't often know when your next meal is going to come. 
Exactly. And that's why cooking was such a, a bonus to the hominid evolution. That's why we have one of the reasons we probably have brains the size we do is because when you cook food, number one, you kill pathogens. Number two, you pre-digest it for your body. So you don't need as big, you don't need to chew as long as gorillas and chimps do. You don't need as much digestive system to process the food. You've already heated it, denatured a lot of the proteins, pre-digested some of the proteins. And so it's made our lives a whole lot better. And now we can eat a wider range of food and keep it for longer periods of time. Mm -hmm. One of the things um, that's really trendy today in the dieting world is intermittent fasting. And the idea here is if you stop eating for some time, you know, 12 hours, 16 hours a day, two or three day, days, even um, you are obviously not eating. You're not taking in calories. Um, but then, you know, that changes your body. It changes your metabolic state. Um, and one of the, one of the things that many people will have heard about is ketosis and the ketogenic diet. And this is an area that, that you know a lot about. So before we get into the ketogenic diet and, and some brain health questions, I want to ask you, because you've got a lot of expertise here. Um, what is, so when you're fasting, what are the, sort of the key things that are happening in the body and what's changing when you go into ketosis? So our bodies, as I said, primarily have learned to live on carbohydrates as the main food source with fats as the backup. That's basically it. Um, we, we try not to eat protein, you know, digest proteins because we need them. They're for our structural strength. We can digest proteins. The amino acids can give rise to energy, but that's kind of the last fail safe for the, uh, for the mammalian organism. So in general, we eat enough balance of sugar, fat, and protein that the carbohydrates, whether usually starch has been the main carbohydrate that humans consumed, underground storage units like potatoes, cassava, et cetera, has been a major source of calories for us. And that's where calories came from. So when we eat fats, we would burn some, but we'd store most of them. Uh, but we were never overweight because we never had that much food and we were temperate in what we ate. Just again, the human appetite wasn't like it is today. It's hard to imagine, but in, in for a lot of populations, they just didn't, they would feast when there was a reason to, but they often didn't have that opportunity. So basically they burned carbohydrates with a little bit of fats. And that was what humans burned for most of our evolutionary history. If at some point we either didn't get food at all or didn't get access to any carbohydrates. And let's just say it was the Inuit and it is, you know, 1935 and it's winter and there's no plants anywhere to be seen for months. Those human individuals ate largely fat. That was their main, a little bit of protein, but mainly fat. And they did quite well, but they were in, in a state called ketosis. So when there's no carbohydrates in the diet, after a couple of days or even within a day, the body's metabolism shifts gears and literally goes from consuming primarily carbohydrates to run the average cell to mainly consuming fats to run the average cell. And that ketosis is a state where our bodies, by burning fats, are producing ketone bodies. Fats are long chains of carbon with hydrogen atoms coming off. There may be or may not be double bonds, as we refer to. But when our body digests those, we give off carbon. And that carbon, one of them is, is a ketone body. And those will give an acidic smell to the urine 
um, and even to the breath sometimes of individuals who are on a very, very low carbohydrate diet. And th so that's ketosis. And people will go on that kind of diet to lose weight. And it is an effective weight loss diet. I see. So, um, I mean, it might be, uh, it might be counterintuitive to, to people who don't know about the biology, but it's, you're eating a no carb sort of all fat diet and that's actually helping you lose body fat. It is. And it makes perfect sense metabolically. It doesn't make sense from calories in calories out, but keep in mind, as I have referred to insulin, its job is to go up after you eat a carbohydrate rich meal and synthesize fats and store fats and tell the body to burn sugar that's in the blood because we're rich. We just hit the jackpot. And the problem with insulin is if you've become overweight or even more so if you've become obese, your insulin levels are chronically high. And so the way I would ex I explain it to my patients, and this has been studied by really good metabolism experts, is that for the average body weight person, let's just say my body weight is, is average for a human being over histor historical times. My BMI is like 21 or 22. Um, it actually used to be lower. So I'm probably thin for the American society, but I'm probably overweight if you look back 200 years or so. But when I go to bed at night, let's just say I eat a, a mixed dinner of, of meat and uh, potatoes, whatever, for dinner at six o'clock, seven o'clock. And then at 10 o'clock, I go to bed. I haven't eaten for three, four hours. My blood sugar is coming down. My insulin levels are coming down. By the time it's midnight, my insulin levels have almost approached the floor. They're close to zero. They're gone. When the insulin levels get that low, the fat cells open up because the fat cells listen to insulin more than anything else. And if there's a modest amount of insulin in the, in the blood, the fat cells close down and they say, there's plenty of energy. Do not open up your beautiful, precious stores of fat. Lock it up. Lock it up. And so for someone like myself, when I sleep, I burn fat because I'm thin and my insulin levels are normal and I have normal physiology. If you're overweight or obese, your insulin levels are chronically elevated. Your tissues, especially your muscle and your heart and your liver, are relatively insulin insensitive. It's what happens to, you know, alcohol. Think of it like alcohol. If you drink eight beers a day, you're going to be relatively insensitive to alcohol. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I've never had an alcoholic beverage in my life and I had three beers, I will be intoxicated. Yeah, I'm very sensitive to alcohol because I've never seen it before. But if you're living for 20 years with high insulin levels because you're obese, every cell in your body has become somewhat insulin resistant. The last cells to become insulin resistant are the fat cells. And so the fat cells see high insulin levels at two in the morning and they say, okay, insulin levels are high, lock all the fat in the fat cells. So fat people unfortunately can't burn fat unless they get their insulin levels really, really, really low, which takes time. They can't do it in one night because mm. this doesn't happen. And so that's why obese people don't lose weight because unfortunately they can eat only 700 calories a day. But if those 700 calories include starches, even healthy starches like broccoli and baked potato, that's which keeping is insulin up. To eat, it's keeping the insulin levels up and they can't lose weight. And they're wondering what the heck's going on. I'm only eating 700 calories a day and I'm not losing weight. Whereas this guy next to me 
he's eating a lot more food and he's thin. How can that be? <laughs> and that's why, because of insulin. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I want to ask you about too is, so, you know, two important health concerns, obviously. On the one side, cardiovascular disease. Obviously, you don't want people to have heart attacks. You don't want them to die of cardiovascular disease. That's that's a major concern and has been for a long time. And that's a lot of where this idea that we talked about earlier of the diet heart hypothesis came from. Like, okay, people are thinking, including doctors, are thinking heart disease comes from high cholesterol. High cholesterol is coming from dietary saturated fat. Um, this is where you start talking about medications like statins, Right, that people are going to be given to lower their cholesterol because you're trying to avoid the cardiovascular disease. Over here on the other side, you've got the explosion in metabolic disease, things like obesity and insulin resistance or diabetes. Is the way that we've done medicine and the, some of the ways that we've been confused historically about the causes of these things, has it caused us to actually um, exacerbate certain problems with the way that we um, prescribe medications? So for example, I'm thinking here of uh, the in potential interplay between something like statins that might be given to lower someone's risk of cardiovascular disease. Are those actually making some of the things on the insulin sensitivity side worse? I don't know if statins make other things worse. I don't know that they're as universally wonderful as they're promoted to be. And I worry about it for a few levels. Number one, the history of science and medicine is that wherever billions of dollars are at play, bias centers. So I talked about the sugar industry, and that's been extraordinarily well documented. Unfortunately, no matter how well documented it is, nothing changes. Uh, so it's a good example where we know exactly how corrupt politicians and how industry has been. And yet, even the medical establishment, I said the New England Journal in the 1960s published a multi-article on diet and health and heart disease, and it basically came out saying sugar is fine, saturated fats are evil. It was paid for by the sugar industry. They have documentation. They literally paid the doctors who wrote it, the scientists. So it's, it's mind-boggling. Now think of statins, how many billions and billions are made every year. The amount of money that is going into promoting one viewpoint on this is overwhelming. Um, having said that, I don't know how bad the downside is. I will say one concern I have. So I'll, let me just take you back. Framingham Heart Study was the famous heart study done in the 19, started in the late 1940s, went through. And in 1961, they published their first paper on risk factors. That's where the word risk factor comes from, the Framingham study. And that was the study that showed especially men, middle-aged or older, who have cholesterol, total cholesterols over 260, had higher rates of cardiovascular disease and death. And no doubt, I think that's true. That's been borne out by a lot of research. What no one talks about is that that same Framingham study and many, many other studies since have found that very low cholesterol levels in some of those studies have been associated with higher rates of cancer, higher rates of accidental death, and higher rates of suicide deaths. Mm -hmm. So overall, even in Framingham, for men whose cholesterol was under 160, total mortality was not terribly different than men whose cholesterol was over 260. Mm -hmm. But in 1960, it was heart disease, heart disease, heart disease, heart disease. No one talked about nutrition and cancer. And when they eventually did, they just lumped saturated fat with heart disease and said, well, it must be causing cancer too, because it's got to, right? There's more cancer now than there used to be. It's got to be saturated fat. 
The Surgeon General Coop wrote a report that said the evidence implicating dietary saturated fat in causing cancer was stronger than the data implicating cigarettes in lung cancer in the 60s. That was one of the most false statements that a Surgeon General has ever admitted. There was no data before he said it. And in the 30 some years afterwards, there's no data. And the National Cancer Institute, which promoted that hypothesis in the 70s and early 80s, has completely abandoned it. But we're left with the legacy of it. So I'll go through one more thing just to show how politics gets ugly. A very famous doctor in the Framingham Heart Story, George Mann, who studied the Maasai, one of those populations where the milk, blood, and meat, so very, very, very high saturated fat diets. These are um, Native American, Native Africans uh, who are herders, and you know, high, extraordinarily high fat diet and low heart disease rates. Again, how well the heart disease was characterized, you could argue about, but clearly not high heart disease rates for sure, and. He got lambasted. You know, he became a persona non grata and eventually lost all of his funding. As part of the frame, as a doctor at Framingham, he did a nutritional study that went for four years from 1956 to 1960. And in a cohort of, I think, like 2,000 people in Framingham, he and a dietitian went to the houses, interviewed homemakers about what they cooked, measured things, weighed things, and looked in great detail at what people consumed and then followed them and looked at what their heart disease rate was, mortality, et cetera, et cetera. What they found was no correlation between how much saturated fat you ate and what your cholesterol was, nor any relationship between how much saturated fat you ate and what your heart health was. Hmm. But what happened to that study? He was forbidden from publishing it. It exists as a supplement of the Framingham study that you could not get at any medical library in the United States. I was able to get a microfiche of it as a PDF from the Framingham Natick Library. And amazingly, it got published by a statistician who said, I found this incredible study. It's basically been buried. The data is immaculate. The study was beautifully performed. And I feel like it's my duty to, to write this up. So we wrote it up as supplement, I think, 24 of the Framingham Heart Study. I have a copy if you ever want. And at the end, there's a newspaper clipping from the Framingham paper where the head, I think it was Thomas Dauber at the time, is quoted about the study and says, don't believe it. You know, fats are still bad for you. So they did the best study they could do in the late 1950s. And because it didn't agree with the dogma of Ansel Keys and his crew, they buried it. And it who, will remain buried who, today. Who exactly is they? They being the heart mafia, you know, the American Heart Association, the NIH, the you know, the National Health Service, I believe, paid for the Framingham Heart Study. Our tax dollars paid for the study, and they buried it. They would mm -hmm. not allow it to come out. And what? So, uh, I guess, uh, why do you think that they would behave in that kind of way? Are they thinking? You know, we've got our, our reputations and our careers staked on this hypothesis being true, and they're afraid that like they won't be seen as experts anymore if evidence goes the I other way. I think it's a combination of that. Listen, we all have egos. We all yeah. want to look good. You all want to come home and have your kid or wife be whatever proud of you. Um, so I think there was some ego, just pure old ego. It's also it's my you know, listen, if you have a hypothesis 
the longer you stick with it, the more you're tied to it, baby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you want it to be right, and you'll kill any you know you'll kill any argument that shows you're wrong. But I think there's another equally sinister part, and it goes with all public health. So science is the religion of doubt. In science, you mm. can, you know, Feynman has a great quote. You could be 99% sure your hypothesis has been proven by a set of experiments. But as long as there's 1%, I don't care if it's 0.01 or 2%, but as long as it's not 100% definite, there has to be doubt. You have to doubt yourself. If you don't doubt yourself, you will always fall in the trap of knowing you're right. Whereas in religion, you know, if you say I'm a Buddhist or Hinduist or Muslim or Hebrew or Catholic, then part of that is saying I believe in this doctrine, but there's no evidence. Um, you're not going to ask someone for 100%. You're not even asking for 5% proof. You're just, it's, it's a spiritual thing, and I'll accept that. But that's not science. You want to go to the science side, show me the data. And so what happened with public health is public health should be grounded in science, and in large part it is. But the issue with public health, and, and take the COVID vaccine, because this is a beautiful example, and I am an advocate for the COVID vaccine back in two years ago when the pandemic was spreading and people were dying all over. I think the risk benefit of the vaccine made good sense. And I also believe in the concept of public health where either large groups of people embrace it and get the vaccine for herd immunity, or we won't get the benefit we should hopefully enjoy as a community. So to do that, you've got to promote it and you want to try to remove doubt. Imagine what would have happened if Tony Fauci in the middle of the pandemic said, well, you know, we do worry about these cardiomyopathy deaths. So I must tell you, I can't tell you whether to take the vaccine or not. You know, it could save your grandfather's life, but your kid may get a cardiomyopathy and could end up with a problem. And we don't have all the data yet. So who knows what the right thing is? If Fauci had come out and said that, no one would have gotten vaccinated and we might have another million dead Americans. So I think what he did was right. And I think presenting a unified public opinion is an important thing to do at times. It's a dangerous thing to do because we never have enough data to be really, really sure of what the outcomes are. I think for COVID, it was the right thing to do. I think for heart disease in 1961, it was a horrible thing to do. And I think the diabetes and obesity epidemics I think cancer in part has gone up from that from the dietary changes we've done. We've promoted refined carbohydrates. We've eliminated natural meats like pork and, and beef and replaced them with artificial pre-made products that make us fat and make us obese and make us prone towards gout and so many other diseases, probably Alzheimer's and, and cancer and many, many others. So I think that's this frisson of public health. You want a unified message. And that's what they were doing when they suppressed the Framingham Heart Study. They felt like if this study came out and got covered in the New York Times and Time Magazine, what are Americans going to think? They'll just go back to eating pork for lunch. You know, we don't want that. We don't want everyone having bacon for breakfast and hamburgers for lunch and steak for dinner. They're going to die of heart disease. And they knew they were right in their mind, and they weren't. That's the dangerous part. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because... Our public health institutions have this sort of inherent, um, this inherent tendency to want to present 
you know, a, a unified message because, you know, so much of public health does depend on having sufficient fractions of the population doing things a certain way. That, that seems to sort of be baked into the nature of a public health institution. You know, given what we've seen with the history of the diet stuff, given where we're at today, you know, no matter how you view questions of vaccine stuff and Anthony Fauci and, and our institutions on, on that issue, there's a lot of uh, people who've, who've lost faith in these institutions. Uh, given what you know, Oren, about how these things work today and, and what the history has been, you know, if you imagine the average American today going to see the average physician and, and listening to you know all of our institutions, whether it's the American Heart Association or others, how much, if you were the, the, the average person, but knowing what you know as a physician and someone who, who just knows a lot about all of the history here, how much faith and trust would you be placing in these institutions today? You know, I have mixed feelings. I think I love medicine. I think my colleagues are, you know, brilliant scientists and doctors, but they make mistakes. I see my car, I see my internist, my cholesterol is 215 because I eat what I want to eat in in my way. I don't eat hardly any sugar. I'm extremely low sugar, low processed white flour. And I don't eat tremendous amounts of fat, but I'll eat, you know, naturally made cheeses. I'll eat, you know, steaks when I want to. Um, and my cholesterol is 210, 215. My HDLs are rocking. They're great. My ratio is fantastic. So I don't worry. But my my internist would love to see me on, an, on a statin and there's just no way I'm doing it. Um, I think I don't think the benefits for me, I don't think there's any data for my specific profile that they would be beneficial. And I do fear people like um, the guy from who wrote Outlive, uh, Peter Atia. you know, he would argue that your cholesterol can never be too low. And I would disagree with him strongly. I do mm. not think he has the data to make that claim. And he'll go to Mendel, uh, ran, Mendelian randomization studies, which is where someone like you are born with a gene where you unfortunately have high cholesterol. I'm born with a different genetic profile and, and we eat the identical diets. My cholesterol is 120 despite eating whatever the heck I want. And you can show that, yeah, people like me with cholesterols of 120 indeed do have lower heart disease rates. The challenge is, you know, do I also have lower cancer rates? And he's convinced... <laughs> It's not different, but I'm not convinced. I've read those papers. I've downloaded all those papers from his reference section, and and my interpretation is not black and white like his is. So I think the challenge for the average person is you should be skeptical, but you've got to try. You know, the average person can't download ten thousand papers and five hundred books like I have, um, and it's not like I know everything after reading all that. I know enough to be skeptical and and have a lot of doubt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised. I actually had an interaction with a family member recently, and um, you know, skipping over some detail, you know, I think her LDL was at you know one sixty, one seventy, something like that. But her, you know, her HDL was fine. Her her H her triglyceride to HDL ratio was fantastic. And, you know, she's a middle-aged woman, um, you know, right at the peak of where you expect some of her cholesterol levels to be in, in, in being in her demographic. And uh, yeah, the doctor was like, oh, absolutely. We need to put you on a statin. And I was just like, well, I mean, that, that just seems to be like, oh, it's above some magic number that we were taught about in medical school 20 years ago. Therefore, prescribe it, no questions asked, without even considering any of the other biomarkers and, and where they are relative to that. And uh, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, I... And even the Framingham data was not nearly as strong for women as men. So mm -hmm. for women, you know, there are different 
biological creature and they have overall lower heart disease rates. But, you know, when you take away smoking, when you take away hypertension, which are risk factors for both men and women, you know, cholesterol becomes much less of an issue for women than men. Not that it's not an issue. And certainly women who have familial hypercholesterolemia with levels of 300 should be on a statin. But I think for the women who have, you know, high HDLs and, and low triglycerides, they're in a pretty good place. Mm-hmm. So um, switching gears a little bit. So we started to talk about ketosis and the ketogenic diet. Um, you know, one of the major applications there that some people will know about is um, the ketogenic diet is actually a, a treatment for certain forms of epilepsy. But I want to talk about ketosis and ketogenic diet on a, on a broader level. Um, you, you, you explained before what ketosis was and how the ketogenic diet and going into ketosis can help you lose body fat. But um, in general, if someone goes on the ketogenic diet, what are some of the other health consequences there, positive or negative? So I think positive ones, for example, things like triglycerides will go down significantly. Triglycerides are mainly a measure of dietary carbohydrate, especially refined carbohydrates. Um, so that's one of the beneficial ones, obviously, weight and diabetes. If someone has elevated hemoglobin A1C, which is an early precursor of diabetes coming out, that will go down. Diabetic insulin levels will go down. So those, And I think weight will go down. And weight, of course, when it goes up significantly is a risk factor for cancer, heart disease, and, and premature death. So I think overall, there's there are a lot of health benefits, especially if you're overweight. I think if you're normal body weight, I'm kind of agnostic. I'm not sure it's beneficial or harmful. It's perfectly fine. If you enjoy eating a ketogenic diet, I think you'll probably be just fine. Um, having said that, for the people on really strict ketogenic diets, where they really have minimal carbohydrates, um, they do have higher rates of kidney stones. They certainly can suffer things like constipation. And there may occasionally be nutritional deficiencies depending on what kind of meat they eat and what the balance of vitamins are. But in general, it's a fairly healthy diet. I think you just have to make sure you maintain fluid intake uh, for your kidneys and just make sure, you know, some things like vitamin D that people may get from milk, depending on what you're consuming, may not be in a ketogenic diet. So just be aware of some of the vitamins that might might be missed. Of course, more vitamins can be missed in a purely vegetarian diet because meat tends to have almost all vitamins except for vitamin C. Mm-hmm. Given everything that you know, but but you know, in particular, given some of the trends uh, that we were discussing from that paper you published to do with um, animal fats and vegetable fats. When we think about the more recent, some of the more recent trends, the more recent pushes, and the more recent uh, product innovations around uh, things like plant-based meat substitutes and moving towards a plant-based diet, what's your overall take on whether or not th- that makes obvious sense? That people should be going further and further into the plant-based direction. Is there some merit to that? Do you have some skepticism there? How should people start to think well, about I would it? Look- I'd look at the plant-based thing from two perspectives. One is the environment, perhaps, and what we're doing to the planet and how much land we're cultivating, et cetera. And I think there, there's an argument that could be made that you know plants are better as a sustainable food source for the human population uh, ecologically. But I think with regards to health, you know, there may, in general, if I if I had to tell someone to choose 
what to eat and it was either going to be all plants or all animals i'd probably lean a little bit towards the plants just because especially if they're not processed but i think they're both healthy and i think the idea that you know vegetarian diets are so much better than diets that include meat is is not supported by scientific mm -hmm. data so the china study is a book that was written be, by uh t colin uh blocking his last name campbell colin campbell and um i i think it's probably some of the worst science i've ever encountered in my life um it's amazing it sold millions of copies i've read the book many times i've interviewed co so it was done as the it was called the the China Oxford Cornell study originally. So people from those three universities and institutions were involved. I got to speak to Richard Pito. He was one of the original scientists. He was the Oxford scientist. Richard Pito and Dahl were among the people who identified cigarette smoking as a cause of lung cancer in the 50s. So Pito goes with Dahl was the older scientist. But Pito, when I spoke to him, I don't know, five years ago or so, was still alive. I hope he still is. But I asked him, how is that that, you know, you're on some of the original tables, all these incredible data. I have them in my home. I have the books. They're they like weigh 20 pounds. They're crazy. Uh, but I said, but you've never been on a paper, like an academic paper. I mean, most studies like this, they, they give, you know, you look at Willett, Walter Willett's Women's Health Initiative or Nurses Health. He rise to 20 New England Journal and JAMA papers. The China study, you know, which is such a huge study hundreds of thousands of subjects over long periods of time it's never made it into any mainstream journal outside of a supplement i said why didn't you join any of the publications and he basically said i don't think you can draw any conclusions from the data um, and he's right you know you can read the reviews that came out when the the massive tombs were originally published by epidemiologists and they showed that the more the more animal meat you ate in China, the lower the cancer rates. I mean, it just then, which is not like a strong association, but the data was just horrible. And it became, this is an example of like the opposite of Ansel Keys, you know, just someone took a, a mountain of data and became a prophet. It's like you took the Webster's dictionary behind you, wouldn't let anybody see what's in it, went to the top of the mountain and say, I discovered God and truth, and it's all in this book, and you need to listen to me. Eat plants. That's it. I got the data. It's all in this book. And so I think it's a fraud. I think people should look under the covers, and if they do and take a deep dive, it's it's just the worst science ever. Well, Warren, um, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Uh, we, we've covered a lot of ground today. This has been great. Um, is there anything that you think we've missed that fits in with what we were talking about that we should dig into for a minute or anything that you want to reiterate for people that you think is no, especially important? A, a couple things. I think you mentioned brain health and nutrition. I am obviously fascinated by nutrition. I've been a neurologist my entire life. I still see patients with neurologic disease. I, I wish there was data on what foods were brain healthy. Um, I do think probably like everything else, you know, people who ate minimally processed foods like Native Americans in 1900 had very low rates of Alzheimer's disease, stroke, and, and a lot of other diseases. So I, I think we don't know what foods are healthy for the brain, but I would say there's evidence to support the thesis that highly processed foods are unhealthy for every part of your body, including your brain. Um, and that if there's one takeaway from what I've said today is that it's not plants or animals, 
populations have been, you know, eating what they can get that's high quality, nutritious foods whenever they can get it. Uh, but as much as it can be minimally processed, if you're going to get chickens that ran around outside and cook them yourself, you're going to do much better than going to a fast food place and getting some fried chicken. Um, you know, that's just, it, it tastes good. And there's a reason it tastes good. You know, they've made those fried chickens and they've made those desserts to make us happy. And they do make us happy, but it's like heroin. It's great in the short run. It's terrible in the long run. All right, Dr. Oren Davinsky, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen and it's a handheld pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters, to get $50 off your Lumen device today.